um, answered in Psalm 33.1. The psalmist says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him of those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Congregation, when the psalmist begins this psalm saying, praise befits the upright, John Calvin, I think rightly, uh, says that phrase, praise befits the upright, means that there is no exercise in which we can be better employed. It's saying the most important, the most fitting, the most vital task in which we are involved is the praise of our triune God. That's why he made us. A man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What the psalmist does in Psalm 33 is he, he then gives us several reasons why it is that praise is fitting for God's people. Several reasons why praise befits the upright. Um, just in case there are any among God's people who are who are slow to tune their hearts to praise, he reminds them we have every reason to praise the Lord. 
As if you're here this afternoon and you find yourself sometimes slow to want to praise our God, perhaps reluctant to um, heed that call to shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Psalm 33 is given to us to give us several reasons to tune our heart to praise. In fact, it becomes the very means by which God tunes our hearts as it lists for us six reasons why praise befits the upright. Six reasons why it is our blessed and joyful privilege to heed that call of verses 1 to 3. The first reason is because of the forgiveness of sin. I mentioned Psalm 33 is, is one of the only books in book one of the Psalms lacking a superscription, which has caused many, I think rightly, to read Psalm 33 in light of Psalm 32 that goes just before it, where David has just been celebrating the forgiveness of sin. That's why we sang Psalm 32 a moment ago to to sort of get it into our, our minds, this psalm about the blessedness of being those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered over, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's what Psalm 32 is all about, the forgiveness of sin. And that psalm then ends with that call in verse 11, to be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That is, of course, that the righteous and upright, not by nature, but by grace. You might recall we looked at this psalm on on Reformation Sunday and how it speaks of, of these very themes that the Reformation recovered, of the righteousness that is by faith alone, of the forgiveness of sins, of God not imputing our sins to us because he imputed them to his son so that his righteousness might be given to us. Now as we read the Psalter sequentially, the way that I've been arguing we should, isn't it interesting that Psalm 33 now picks up the very same language of Psalm 32 where the righteous are rejoicing and and shouting for joy here in Psalm 33. That echoes the very last words of Psalm 32. That's not the only uh, parallel between these, these psalms, um, even as we were singing. Uh, you, you notice the, the way that Psalm 32, verse 8, speaks of the Lord's eye being upon us. The, uh, 19th, the 18th verse of Psalm 33 picks up this, this same thing. You see all, all these, these themes, both in Psalm 33 and Psalm 32, the one picking up on the other. And I would suggest then that the, the lack of a, of a superscription at the beginning of Psalm 33, which is unique in book one, and then these echoes between the two psalms uh, should lead us to read these psalms together. The response of the sinner whose transgressions have been forgiven, whose sin is covered, whose iniquity is not counted against him, who is now counted righteous by grace, the, the response of that one is to shout for joy and give thanks, to sing a new song with a loud shout. It's what Psalm 33 is calling us to do in light of Psalm 32. Just sort of as an aside, that phrase where it calls us to sing a new song that that doesn't so much have the idea of of now um, writing something new, but it's it's actually introducing the song that follows. Almost every occurrence of this phrase in in, in the Psalms, to sing a new song, um, happens at, at the beginning of a psalm, introducing the song that follows. It's, it's introducing the, the new thing that God has done and calling us to sing in response to it. 
Um, often it's in the context of this turn from lament to praise in, in, in God bringing his people from despair to deliverance, calling them to sing of the new thing that God has done. And in this case, in bringing his people from that horrible guilt of Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, where God's hand weighed heavy upon them, to the joy now of Psalm 33. Andrew Bonar rightly speaks of this phrase, a new song, as, as a redemption melody. It's a song of salvation. It's a song of deliverance here, in this case, in response to the forgiveness of sin. And so as we think about the reasons that God has given us to heed this call to worship in Psalm 33, verses 1 to 3, as we think about the reasons why praise does indeed befit the upright, the first reason is because God has forgiven your sins through Christ Jesus. You might remember as we, we considered Psalm 32 a few months ago, we spoke of how all of those, those images that it gives in those opening verses of how he covers our sin, of how he doesn't impute it to us but imputes it to another, all of those, those themes, all of those images, those pictures are, are pointing us to Jesus Christ, the one in whom these very word pictures will be fulfilled. First reason why praise befits the upright is because God has forgiven your sins through Christ Jesus. Movement from Psalm 32 to Psalm 33 is, is teaching us if God has so dealt with you that it is your fitting response to give thanks, to sing this redemption melody and to do so with joy. Praise befits the upright because God has forgiven your sins. And then second, praise befits the upright, not just because of what God has done, but because of who God is. As verses four and five, this psalm direct us now to God's glorious attributes where praise befits the upright because of God's loving and just character. These verses speak of how all of God's works are done in faithfulness. And how he loves righteousness and justice, it speaks then of his, his faithfulness, his righteousness and justice, and how all of the earth is filled with his steadfast love. A very simple lesson from these two verses about the, the nature of our worship, that the nature of our praise is that, that worship is our response to who God is and to what God has done. I think this is teaching us there needs to be a depth of, of content to our worship where we're not just singing of, of uh, feelings about God in the abstract, but feelings that are rooted in objective truth outside of us. Worship is our response to God and therefore needs to be fueled by truth about God. I'm Spurgeon commenting on this verse. He, he said that the character of God is a sea, every drop of which should become a wellhead of praise for his people. The attributes of God, and in verse 4, the, the works of God should fuel our praise. Verses 4 and 5, the um, attributes of God that the psalmist directs our attention to are his righteousness and justice and his steadfast love. As you sing to the Lord a new song, let that song sing of both his loving and just character. 
The psalm is going to go on um, later to, to allude to events in Israel's history like the Exodus. As you think of an event like that, it, it reveals both God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to his people whose groans he hears, but it also reveals his perfect justice in, in throwing Pharaoh and his rider into the sea. You can um, go back to, to Exodus 15 and, and read that, that song of the sea that Moses led God's people in, in singing, how it, it celebrates both God's steadfast love in saving his people, but also his justice in crushing the seed of the serpent. The, the Psalms too, just like Exodus 15, celebrate these dual realities. The justice of God and yet also the steadfast love of God. And both of these dual realities, both of these attributes that the psalmist is here and so often throughout the psalter directing our attention to, God's justice and God's, God's loving mercy point us to the cross of Christ where Psalm 85 tells us justice and mercy kiss. We see in one and the same act both the loving and just character of our great God. The psalmist here teaches us to use these very attributes. These are just examples. But to use the attributes of God, and these ones in particular, as, as fuel to ignite our praise. You can think of a few years ago, a PCA pastor in Vancouver, Mark Jones, published what I think is a really helpful um, devotional guide to the attributes of God, simply titled God Is, and it, it goes through uh, 26 or so attributes of God in, uh, for use in, in personal and in private devotion, simply to, to fuel our praise. The attributes of God should have a, a devotional aspect. They lead us to praise. The psalmist is here in verses 4 and 5 teaching us very simply that theology should lead to doxology, that our, our doctrine must lead to praise. And then he, he's also teaching us the, the, the flip side of that, that our praise must be filled with doctrine. I would suggest in this way that Psalm 33 is a, a corrective to, to those of us perhaps on, on both sides of the spectrum, those who, who love doctrine but don't uh, let that, that doctrine sing and lead to a response of praise, um, and those who, who don't necessarily need to be told to sing with loud shouts of joy but perhaps have not considered how those loud shouts of joy need to be filled and fueled by doctrine. The objective truth of, of who God is and what he's done. Our singing should be as theological as our preaching. As Paul says in Colossians 3, it is one of the ways that we are to teach and admonish one another, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. It's one of the ways that, that we meditate on God's truth, Psalm 1. So let the psalmist here lead you to theological doxology, to doxological doctrine that dances, that sings, that delights in who God is. Praise befits the upright because of the forgiveness of sins that God grants us through Christ, because of his loving and just character, both of which are seen ultimately at the cross, which makes possible the forgiveness of sins. And third, um, Psalm 33 teaches us that praise befits the upright because of God's creating 
and redeeming words. Really, we see this in verses four through nine where it says that the word of the Lord is upright by the word of the Lord, that the heavens were made by his breath, all their host. It says he spoke and the world came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Notice five times this passage mentions the power of the word of God by which he creates, verse 6, and by which he redeems, verse 7. With that, that language of, of gathering up the waters as a heap is, is an echo of um, Exodus 15 and Psalm 78 in their description of what took place in the Exodus. The word of the Lord that the psalmist ca- calls us to praise is not only the word that creates, but also the word that redeems that saves as God did for his people in the Exodus. This loving and just God of verses four and five is the creating God of verse six and the saving God of verse seven, who saved his people not just from bondage to Pharaoh as in the Exodus, but saves us from bondage to Satan, sin, and death through the greater than Moses, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the power of his word redeems us. And Psalm 33 is calling us to recognize the power of God's word and to praise him for it. Much like we just did in our our psalm reading through Psalm 119, where the psalmist led us in in singing and saying and, and praying, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Your testimonies are the joy of my heart. God, in places like Psalm 119 or Psalm 19 or Psalm 1, he he calls us to praise him for his life-giving word, for his creating and redeeming word, and even for his incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one by whom God creates all things and through whom he redeems us. You can see how all of these reasons that they're given to praise already in the Old Testament are um, pointing ahead to what God will do through Christ in the New. That he is the one who makes possible the forgiveness of sins. That he is the one who demonstrates God's loving and just character. And he is the eternal word in whom verse 4 of this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment. All of these themes of why Israel in the Old Testament was to praise the Lord point perfectly to Christ who is the reason for our praise. Praise befits the upright because God in Christ has forgiven your sins as the loving and just one who is also your creator and redeemer, both of which should lead you to praise for what God in Christ has done both in creation and redemption. And then next, in verses 10 and 11, we see that God calls us also to praise him for what he does in bringing all of his counsel to pass. Notice there it says that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, but then it also speaks in, in contrast to that of how the plans of the, the peoples and, and the counsel of the nations are brought to nothing. The fourth reason here why Psalm 33 gives us to praise the Lord is because of his unthwartable counsel. That the plans of his heart, verse 11 tells us, stand forever 
uh, that he will not allow the vain attempts of the nations to thwart them. He will not allow those vain attempts to succeed. When it talks here in verses 10 and 11, uh, verse 10 in, in particular, about the, the nations taking counsel together, I think we're to read that negatively, that they're taking counsel against the Lord. And I think we're to read this in light of Psalm 2, that, that introduction to the psalm. Remember Psalms 1 and, and Psalms 2, and the only other times in Book 1 that, that lack a superscription. Psalms 1 and 2 are this, this entryway into the Psalter that are, are giving us the lens through which to view the rest of the Psalter. And there in Psalm 2, it, it says that the nations, they, they plot in vain and they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And now here, it's speaking of, of God bringing the counsel of nations to nothing, but his standing forever. I think what this is saying in light of, of Psalm 2 is that God blocks the world's opposition to his Messiah and to his plan of salvation. The nations rage the people's plot in vain, they take counsel together against him, but God's counsel stands. We see here the very simple and plain truth that, that he frustrates their plots. As, as um, David said in Psalm 2, the God who sits in heaven laughs. Because their very attempts to take counsel together against him, against his anointed, will in fact lead to the fulfillment of God's eternal counsel. You just think of the cross where they, they take counsel together against the Lord's anointed and crucify him, yet it's that that brings about the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Or, or they're continued plotting against Christ's people. The, the, the persecution of the church that we see continuing in the book of Acts down to our present day, that too God uses to bring about the fulfillment of his counsel. As the church father Tertullian said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God frustrates the plans of the peoples and he even brings from those, those plans the fulfillment of his own counsel. As he did at the cross and as he continues to do even today. And the psalmist tells us that too is a reason for praise that all of God's eternal plans in creation and redemption, all of his plans in Christ Jesus will come to fruition. The gates of hell will not prevail against them. The psalmist here in verses 10 and 11, he holds up for us God's unthwartable counsels, yet another reason for praise, which is, is connected to what we see in verse 12. I don't want to actually treat this one as, as a whole point in itself. When um, the psalmist speaks of how God's counsel stands forever. The plans of the wicked against them do not prosper. Notice he then says in verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This is kind of like Psalm 2. Blessed are all who, who take refuge in him. The people whom he has chosen, verse 12 says, as his heritage. And part of the Lord's counsel standing forever includes his purpose of election in verse 12. Those people he has chosen as his heritage forever. The, the fifth reason there that the psalmist gives us for, for why it is that praise befits the upright is because of God's sovereign election. That he has chosen us as his heritage. That he has made us his holy nation. 
which of course refers to Israel when, when the psalmist writes this, but, but this same language of a, a chosen and holy nation, you know, in the New Testament is, is applied, you think of a place like 1 Peter 2, to the church of Jesus Christ, who Paul calls in Galatians 6 the, the Israel of God. The New Testament makes abundantly clear that the nation whose God is the Lord is the church. That's why Christ chooses 12 disciples to to correspond to the 12 tribes. The the nation of Israel is not the ultimate fulfillment of verse 12, but the Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ. His holy nation, as Peter calls us in 1 Peter 2, by sovereign election who are blessed in him while he frustrates the plans of the nations. Notice that that contrast, right? In contrast, the, the judgment of verse 10 on the wicked, verse 12 wants us to see the blessing of being God's people, of being his chosen inheritance. The context of a whole psalm that's about why it is that we should be praising the Lord, this teaches us, it reminds us that the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination is not some abstract doctrine to be forgotten when you finish your grade 11 class on the canons. But it is, as we confess in the canons, to cause us to adore the fathomless depths of God's mercies and to give fervent love in return to him who first so greatly loved us. It is to lead us to worship. Canons 118 says, says the, the proper attitude toward election is that we, with reverent adoration, would cry out with the apostle as we sang before our service, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his ways are past finding out, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Those articles of the canons are written in the same spirit as Psalm 33, 12. The blessing of divine election should lead to praise. My Lord, I did not choose thee, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Election should humble us before God and then cause us from that, that, that place of humility to, to look up and adore the fathomless depths of his sovereign grace. As you can see how this relates to what we said earlier about how, how theology leads to doxology. The psalmist is here seeking to do again is, is to fuel our, our thankfulness that he calls us to in verse 2, is, is seeking to fuel our, our shouts for joy of verse 1, by reminding us that our standing before God is all of grace, that he has chosen us and made us his holy nation, his people, by grace alone. And when you get that, when you understand that there is nothing that you have contributed, but it's all of grace, by, by God's sovereign, divine election that, that draws you to himself, when you get that, you will, like Paul, respond with joyful song. Because of the forgiveness of sin, because of God's loving and just character, because of his creating and redeeming word, his unthwartable counsel, and, and beneath all of that, his sovereign divine election by which we are made the objects of his grace. 
The heart that understands divine election leads to the lips of verses 1 to 3 in praise. The psalmist here in Psalm 33 knows nothing of the so-called frozen chosen, but would say that is a misnomer. It's a, it's a contradiction. It was then and remains so now. Theology leads to doxology. That's true not only for divine election, but also for divine providence, which we see in verses 13 to 19, the sixth and final reason that Psalm 33 gives us for why praise befits the upright. Because we are the, the objects not only of God's sovereign election, but here the psalmist reminds us that we're also the objects of his providential care. It says that he looks down from heaven and he sees everything that he is the one who, who fashions the hearts of all and he sees all their deeds whose eye is upon those who fear him and who hope in his steadfast love. As you, you look at this section of verses 13 through 19, you see that it starts with, with the general, God looking down on all the children of men. And then it moves from the general to the, the particular. Verse 18, his gracious eye on those who fear him those chosen ones whose hope is in his steadfast love. We, he keeps alive in famine whose soul he delivers from death in verse 19. The psalmist is here leading us to consider God's special care for his children, that the special objects of his love. And he's saying that too, his, his providential care for his people should lead us to praise. For how his eye is always upon you. For how he cares for you, even in the midst of your suffering, like that suffering that verse 19 acknowledges. The doctrine of God's providence, and even your, your experience of it in both the highs and lows of life should lead you to praise. So we confess in Lord's Day 10. Charles Spurgeon says it is one of our choicest privileges to be always under our Father's eye, to be never out of the sight of our best friends. He says the Father's eye is as much upon you as it is upon Christ, the elder born of our family. He will care for you. And here the, the psalmist wants this doctrine of God's fatherly goodness and his providential care to lead to praise. So yet again, we, we see how theology and, and, and worship are, are interwoven, how they are inseparable. The one leads to the other. Praise befits the upright because of, of God's forgiveness of our sins, because of his loving and just character, because of his creating and redeeming word, his unthwartable counsel, his sovereign election, and his fatherly providential care. Psalm 33 is, is saying all of these things should lead you to praise our triune God, as verses 1 to 3 say. Or as, or as verses 20 to 22 at the very end demonstrate. We're at the end of the psalm now. The people respond together and say, our soul waits for the Lord. Our heart is glad in him. We trust him. Let your steadfast love, Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. 
See, the people are doing here at the end of the psalm is, is they're responding to that call from the beginning of the psalm. And they're responding at the end of the psalm to that call from the beginning of the psalm in light of everything that they've just heard in the middle of the psalm. Now, verses 20 to 22 is the response of praise that, that this whole psalm was calling for. It is now inviting us, the readers, to join in, to wait for the Lord, our help and our shield, trusting in his holy name and, and all that he is and, and all that he does, including his steadfast love is upon us, whose hearts are glad in him. And so even as, as Psalm 33 is, is inviting us into that, inviting us into this corporate praise at the end of the psalm, it's, it's also then asking us the question, um, is that response your response in verses 20 to 22? Can you honestly say that's you this afternoon, that you are responding to to all that the the upright word of the Lord reveals about his providential care, his loving and just character, and his creating and redeeming work and word through his son? The only appropriate response to all of this is the awestruck, joy-filled worship that, that both the beginning and end of the psalm speak of. It's inviting you into, to behold all that God is and all that he has done, letting your, your worship be informed by doctrine, and then letting that doctrine lead to doxology with loud shouts of praise, a heart that is glad in him, our help and our shield. May his steadfast love be upon us even as we hope in him. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we say with the psalmist, our hearts are glad in you because we trust in your holy name. Our soul waits for you and depends on you, trusts in you, our help and our shield. You have forgiven our sins. You have given us your life-giving word. You have shown forth your loving and, and just character by which all of your counsel stands as you make us the objects of your sovereign love and your providential care. And Lord, in light of all of this, we cannot help but to praise you. No other response would make sense. And so, Father, we pray that you would help our hearts to be so affected by the things that we have just heard from this psalm that our our worship would not be a a cold and and disinterested worship, but that it could rightly be called a shout for joy by hearts that are glad in you, that delight in you. We pray that you would make us glad in you even now as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.